Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we approach you through this time of worship in this church service, Father, we consider the two words in that song we just sang, worthy and deserved. And when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we <clears throat> realize who we are and what we've done and where we've been, and we realize what we are worthy of and what we deserve. What we deserve is not your love and grace. What we are worthy of is not your, your timelessness, your faithfulness. But Father, somehow you say that because of what Jesus has done, that we are worthy of your love. And we deserve your grace. And so, Father, we, not because of anything we've done, but because of who you are, we thank you for making us worthy. And so we pause in this busyness of life, take a, a moment out of our week to say to you, you are worthy because of who you are and what you've done. Because of your faithfulness, you deserve everything that we are, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. You deserve that because you are worthy of all. You are worthy of all. So, Father, with the praises of your people, as they've come before you this morning, would they be in a sweet, sweet sound to your ear? And now we ask as we look at your word, as we read scripture today, that you would speak to us, that your sound would be fresh in our ear, that you would move in our hearts and our heads, move down into our hands and our feet as we serve you, become the hands and feet of Jesus. And God, most importantly, would you teach us today to love better? We pray this in the name of the one who is worthy of it all. Amen. You can be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Thanks for being here in the room with us. Thanks for tuning in online and making this a part of your weekend. Uh, we're so glad we get to spend this time together. I uh, want to remind you that uh, coming up next Sunday night, we are having our next, uh, the, the next event in our 25th anniversary celebration. And next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock is our Low Country Boil. And we hope that you will be here for that. We've got a lot, of, a lot of fun stuff planned, especially, specifically, a lot of delicious food planned. And we look forward to spending this time together next Sunday evening, beginning at 5 o'clock with dinner, uh, activities, fun, all kinds of stuff happening uh, as a part of that next Sunday evening. And we hope that you'll be here. We do ask um, that if possible, you could RSVP for that. You can go to our website, fccnp.org, and right there on the front page, there's a black button. You can press that black button to sign up to RSVP for the Low Country Boil, so we'll know how many, uh, have a good idea of how many people to expect, so we've got enough food. Matter of fact, um, you can do that right now. Go ahead, get your phones out. If you're watching online, you're already on a computer, it's okay. Get the, go click, 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 fccnp.org, press the button. You, you can still pay attention to what I'm doing while you're filling out your name and let us know that you're going to be here next week. So, uh, we hope we'll see you next Sunday night. Also, I want to let you know there are some wonderful things happening in our faith kids ministry and in our faith student ministry. And if you have a middle school or high school student in your life, you want to be sure that they are here tonight uh, for faith students beginning at 6.30. Uh, that, is, that event's on Sunday night from 6.30 to 8. And a lot of great things happening there. A lot of wonderful things happening in our faith kids as well, which happens, uh, the main thing happens on Sunday mornings uh, at 10.30. And uh, we just want to let you know that right now we do have a pretty immediate need for some more 
help in our faith kids ministry, specifically in our preschool ministry. Uh, for, a, for the faith kids to operate at its full functioning and to, to be as effective as it can be, it takes a team of people, and that team's a little short right now. So if there's some way you might be interested in uh, checking out how you could participate in our preschool ministry as a part of Faith Kids, uh, Kara would love to talk to you today, either after the service, or you can email her at Kara at, as with Kara with a K, K-A-R-A, at FCCNP.org. She would love to talk to you about how you might be able to participate in our preschool ministry as a part of our Faith Kids ministry. Well, if you were here last week, we began a sermon series that we are taking all the way to November the 13th, which is the uh, kind of the last big celebration of the 25th anniversary of Faith Christian Church. Uh, so between now and then, in our teaching time, what we're doing is we are looking at the church. We're looking at the history of, uh, of the church. We're going to be looking very specifically kind of in and out of the book of Acts in the New Testament. The book of Acts is the story of how the church began, the very first church. We're going to be looking at some world history, some church history. We talked quite a bit about that last week. And as a part of this, we're going to be talking about some of the history of this church, some of the 25-year history of Faith Christian Church. And so I think for us to understand the story of the church, and that's, again, that's kind of where we're going for these next nine more weeks at this point. To understand the story of the church and the purpose of the church, we have to understand the story of God. And so here it is in five seconds. Are you ready? This is a quote from my friend Andrew. Andrew said this to me a couple years ago, and I've loved this, and I've kept this, I've kept this quote close to me forever. He said it like this. The world is a messy place, but it wasn't created that way, and it's not going to stay that way. And that's kind of the story of God. The world's a messy place, but that's not the way our Creator made the world, and that's not the way He's going to leave it. He's going to fix it. So what happens, the story of God is that God has embarked on a rescue mission, a rescue work to clean up the messy place that the world is. He's going to clean us up. He's going to bring us back to him. Even when we separated ourselves from God on our own willingness, our own uh, willful disobedience, our own sin, we've separated ourselves from him. God is preparing us to be in his presence. And that's his rescue mission. And it starts back, you can read this all the way back in your Old Testament if you've got a copy of the Bible. If you don't, grab one out of the seat in front of you today. Take that with you. All the way back in the Old Testament, we can read that God's plan began with one man, a guy by the name of Abraham. And God said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to rescue the world. And so from Abraham, Abraham began a family. And God says, through this family, I'm going to rescue the world. And this family eventually becomes a nation, the Hebrew nation, the Israelite nation. And God says, through this Israelite nation, I'm going to rescue the world. And from the Israelite nation comes one man, Jesus. And Jesus is the hope of us all. And Jesus is the help that we all need. And Jesus dies on a cross to free us from the penalty of sin. Jesus dies on the cross so that we could be one with God again. So we, we could be considered worthy as we just prayed. He can, we can be considered worthy to, uh, to be in God's presence. And that's the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But that also, when that moment happens, Jesus dies on the cross and Jesus resurrects from the tomb, that also launches the next stage of God's rescue effort in the world, which is no longer a person. It's no longer a family. It's no longer a nation or a people group, but instead it is this word that you and I use called church. God's next stage of rescuing the world is for the church to be the continuation of what Jesus started, for the church to literally be the hands. Get your hands out. You got your hands with you? You bring them with you? Get your hands out. Look at those hands. Those hands are the hands of Jesus in this world today. 
your hands. Those are the literal hands of Jesus Christ in this world today to serve and to comfort and to heal the broken, messy world around us. Look at your feet. Get your feet out. Kick your feet out in front of you. Look at your foot. Look at your foot. Your feet. The, gospel, uh, the book of Romans says, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. Your feet, your hands, your feet are the literal hands and feet of Jesus. And in doing this, when we realize that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, when we realize we are the next stage of God's rescue mission on the world, we can change the world as we know it because the world's a messy place. But it wasn't created that way. And it's not going to stay that way. So in the New Testament book of Acts, we read about the very first days of the church. Here's the setting. Well, then we'll start reading it together. Jesus has been crucified. He has resurrected. And after several days, Jesus ascends into heaven, leaving his disciples, his followers. And God's next step and his great plan to rescue the world goes into action. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1 is the beginning of the church beginning. Let me read it to you. Acts 1, verse, beginning of verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, all right, already we got questions, don't we? In my first book, who's the my? Well, you need to know this. If for no other reason, you'll, you'll get the question right on Jeopardy one day. Who wrote the book of Acts? Well, this guy named Luke, he was a physician. He was an investigator. He was a smart, smart guy. Luke, you've heard, him, you've heard his name before, haven't you? He wrote one of the gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus as well, the gospel of Luke, same guy. He wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. He's investigating all that had happened. Theophilus is this kind of official that he's writing this book to say, something's happening. Something's gone on. Here's what I want you to know. Theophilus wanted to know what's happening. So he hires Luke to investigate and to write it down, to tell him what's going on with this claim of this resurrected Jesus, with this, this movement of the church that's beginning in the first century. Theophilus wanted to know. He hires Luke. Luke is writing this book to Theophilus. That's what you need about that. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes back from the dead. Now, this is not... You know, this is not a, well, you know, a few people think they saw Elvis at the Flying J truck stop in Tuscaloosa. This is not what this is. This is a big deal. Over 500 people saw Jesus in the same moment. 500 people can't have the same hallucination at the same time. Over 500 people saw that he'd come back from the dead at the same time. Thousands see him alive in these 40 days after the resurrection. His gatherers, he gathers together his closest followers, the disciples, the apostles. Look what he says to them, beginning of verse 4. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But... But you will receive power. Everybody say power. Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. Witnesses. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling them that God's rescue mission will continue. 
And that rescue mission is about advancing the kingdom of God in the world in order to change the world. To literally be the rescue agent for everyone who will ever live. And so Jesus says to these disciples, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. Stay in the city for a few more days. Because Jesus knows that very shortly, literally a million people are going to show up in the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to be there to celebrate a Jewish feast called Pentecost. And during this holy day, when all these this, a million or so people are in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is going to use this moment, this very strategic moment, to kickstart the next phase of God's rescue plan. Look what happens. The guys stay in Jerusalem, and God begins to move. Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So here's the picture. They're in this room and they're hanging out and they're waiting for whatever's going to happen next. And Jesus has already gone back to heaven. So it's just the disciples hanging out in this room. And this mighty wind blows through the room. Must have sounded like a freight train coming through the room. And then these flames just kind of overtake them like, like tongues of fire. And suddenly afterwards, they are all able to speak fluently in a language that they had never spoken before. Because the very spirit, the very power of God had come upon them and given, this, given them this ability. So now they're speaking all these languages that they didn't know, that they had never spoken before, and they're speaking them fluently. Why would that be important? Well, they go out of the room, out into the courtyards, out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they, there's a million people gathered from all over the world that all speak different languages. Do you get the picture? And they begin to tell everybody the news about Jesus in whatever language the person needed to hear that, the message about Jesus, whatever language they spoke. When all these millions of people had, who had gathered in Jerusalem began to listen to these guys and recognize, there's no way that guy should be able to speak my language. He's not from my town. He's not from our region. He doesn't, how does he know our language? I have no idea how. They kind of freak out a little bit. It's kind of weird. Verse 5. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, which is kind of a, like a, being a hillbilly. These are, they know these are not educated men. These are not smart guys. These are, these are fishermen from Galilee. All right? These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native language. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. <laughs> but others in the crowd, there's always a party pooper, right? Others in the crowd ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk, <laughs> that's all. As if when you get hammered, you're able to speak in a bunch of different languages, right? <laughs> Most people I know when they get drinking, they can't speak English. So, <laughs> Then Peter stepped forward with the, other, with the 11 other apostles. And he shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews, fellow residents of Jerusalem, a million or so people who have gathered in the city who could hear him and speak another time. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. 
Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. And then Peter and the apostles begin sharing this incredible story of Jesus in whatever language anybody gathered there needed to hear it. And they tell them about Jesus, not the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago that I get to tell you about. They're talking about a Jesus, a guy who had lived, been alive just days before this moment that happens in Acts 2. And they say, we saw him, and we knew him, and we talked to him, and we ate with him, and we, we, we traveled with him. And then we saw him crucified. We saw him on the cross. We saw them take his dead body down off the cross, and then we saw him come back from the dead. And we know that he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And it was like everybody, this crowd, everybody finally got it. Oh. And they said, oh my goodness, what have we done? What have we done? How can we make this right with God? And Peter steps up and tells them exactly what they should do in verse 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, you want to get right with God? You got to do a 180 with your life. You were walking towards what you wanted. You got to turn around and start walking towards what God wants. Then he says, be baptized into Jesus. This practice of going down into water and coming back up. It's this idea of submitting to Jesus, of being united with his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Peter says, you will receive not only forgiveness of your sins, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the people are so moved by what they have heard in their own language and what they've seen happen. They are so moved that they decide to respond. Luke tells us that 3,000 people stepped up that day and said, I want in on that. 3,000 stepped up and said, I want to be a part of that. That's probably because of the way they counted back then. This was probably just the men, 3,000 men. So likely somewhere between six and 10,000 people once we add in the women and children. Somewhere between six and 10,000 people who decided to become followers of Jesus that day and were baptized and received forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice what happens next because this is very, very important. Because what happens next pretty much changes everything. After these people had heard this inspiring message and after they decided they wanted to follow through by saying, I'm in and being baptized, I want you to notice what happens after, can we call it a church service, after that church service and the invitation hymn, I want you to notice what happens after church that day, all right? They don't hurry out to the parking lot so they can beat the Baptist to Bob Evans. That's not what they do. They don't wander around the parking lot complaining that the music's too loud and the pastor's jokes aren't funny. That's it. <laughs> they don't even get in the car and go home and watch football and take a nap, although that's a very spiritual experience. <laughs> They do something entirely different. And what they do initiates God's rescue mission for the world. Let me read it to you, verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. 
They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Here's what happens. They decide, we're not leaving. We're not going to do this on our own. And they band together and we're going to meet together, they, they decide, in, in large groups. They're going to get together to worship God together in large groups in the temple. And we're going to meet together in small groups in people's homes. And we're going to share food together, especially communion together. And we're going to be there for each other. We're going to look out for each other. We're going to help each other raise each other's kids. We're going to make sure that everyone's needs are met. And if somebody had a financial need, well, then I'm going to sell something that I've got that I can live without so that you can have something that you can't live without. And we're going to take care of each other. And this is what they called church. And I want you to notice what they did and how it changed everything around them. The, the things that they choose to do, and this is part Bible, this is part history, but the things they choose to do over the next several years were not rocket science. These were not difficult things to figure out. They were just simple, loving things of being the hands and feet of Jesus. For instance, one of the things that they began to do was they began to value their wives. They lived in a society where women were not even just second-class citizens. Women were no-class citizens. Matter of fact, a lot of guys would have thought that their oxen or their cattle were more important than their wives. It's just the world they lived in. It's a patriarchal society. They live in a society where no one, no one fell in love. There was no romance novels. There was no notebook movies or anything like that at this time. No, there, there a, romance would have, been, would have been a foreign concept in the first century. They never decided to get married because they had fallen in love. They got married for political affiliation, financial considerations, or just to raise a family, which would help you build up your, your, your wealth because you had more people to work on your land. That's why they got married. They never got married for love. So instead, so the people of the church, the Jesus people being the hands and feet of Jesus, they decided we're going to start loving our wives. We're going to start valuing our, our wives. We're going to honor, bring honor to them. Here's another thing they did. They began to value their kids. This was a society where, where kids were seen as a way to better yourself. Children, especially male children, were a status symbol, a way to advance the family tree, to continue the family lineage. They decided instead to take care of and to teach and to love their kids, and not just their kids. Back then, if, if there was a baby that was born with some sort of birth defect or deformity or handicap, they'd take that baby, that handicapped baby out outside the, the, the city walls of the city of Jerusalem and they would put that infant child on the trash heap just throw the child away and the Christians the Jesus people, the hands and feet of Jesus they would, they would wait for that to happen they would watch for that to happen they would go and get that child and rescue them and love them and nurture them and raise them as their own they valued children they also valued each other they took care of one another 
They're in, in this community that they had built called the church, the ecclesia, that word we talked about last week. They're within the family of the church. As somebody had a need, they would meet that need so that no one had any needs. They valued strangers. It wasn't just the people inside their church community, not just the people that looked like them, not just the people that talked like them, not just the people who spoke the same language that they used, not the people who voted like them, not the people who didn't make a mat on Facebook like them. They valued all people, even people they didn't know. And when people began to get struck with plagues and, and leprosy, it was the God people, the Christ followers, the hands and feet of Jesus people that would nurse them back to health or give them dignity in their death. And as a result of these simple things, honoring people, loving better, wives, children, each other, strangers, as, an, as a result of these simple things that the Christ followers would do, the result of the church being the hands and feet of Jesus, it literally began to change the known world. This was God's rescue effort in the world for the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The Roman Empire, the very same empire that once oppressed the Jewish people and had Jesus crucified and then oppressed the Christian people and had Christians thrown to lions and had Christians crucified on the streets, the Roman Empire, in just 300 years, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, and as a result, it literally changed the known world. Now, as great as this plan is, and as great as it was around 300 AD when the Roman Empire decided to embrace Christianity, over time, the church's mission began to drift a little bit. And the church kind of lost its focus. In fact, it began to drift into a variety of different things, and it still does this today. We've got to be aware of this. The church began to take a turn to where people no longer saw the church as the hands and feet of Jesus, but instead they began to see the church as, well, first they thought maybe the church should be a person. They saw the church as a person. Here's what happened. There were many people back then who thought, you know what? Here's my plan. If we could just convert the emperor of Rome, if we could convince the emperor of Rome, if we can convert him to Christianity, make him a Christian, if we can convert the emperor, then he could make Christianity a law and it would be a law that everyone in the Roman Empire had to be a Christian and we could change the world. And that's a shortcut to doing this thing. So guess what they did? They did it. They pulled it off. They converted the emperor. Emperor Constantine was his name. And he became a follower of Jesus. And they, at that point, then they tried to legislate Christianity. And it crashed and burned. It was one of the worst moments in the history, of worst disasters in the history of the church. For from that moment came all these different wars and crusades and inquisitions. And instead of valuing people that didn't look like them or talk like them or think like them or act like them, they began killing those people, all in the name of Jesus, of course. <laughs> Does that sound anything like Jesus to you? It's not what the church was all about because the church was never intended to be a person. So soon after that, they tried it again. This time it was with a, instead of a political leader, they tried it with a spiritual leader. They thought, we need a person to be our spiritual leader. We'll do what we want, but this person will kind of be, kind of go before us to God. And so they came up with this idea called the Pope. 
And the idea was, all right, Pope, you go get close to God. We'll do whatever we want. You put in a good word for us, all right? That's what you do, Pope. And it crashed and burned because it's not supposed to be that way. Here's why. Anytime we begin to think that somebody else can take care of our relationship with God, we miss the greatness of the truth that we get to have a relationship with God because the church was never intended to be a person. By the way, this still happens today, 2022. Don't we have our favorite pastors and priests and teachers and speakers and authors and singers and bands and we put them up on a pedestal and we think that their spirituality, their spirituality will make up for our lack of spirituality If we could just know them, or if we could just have them pray for us, what I've noticed is this. Anytime we elevate a person into the position where the church should be, when that person lets us down, and they will, when that person lets us down, we think God let us down. And we think the church has let us down. What I'm learning every single day, even though I'm a pastor, And even though you trust me enough to sit here and listen to me talk nearly every Sunday morning, I'm reminded every day that I'm just an ordinary guy, like everybody else. And I got my own set of problems. I got my own list of issues. And I'm just trying to get this thing of following Jesus right. And I make mistakes. And I'm not perfect. And if you stick around here long enough, I promise at some point I will disappoint you. But the good news is, I'm not the church. We are the church. Together, we are the church. And when we decide to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Tuscarawas County, we are continuing God's rescue effort in the world. But the moment we start to think of the church as a person, we stop being the hands and feet of Jesus. And God's rescue mission for the world stops. Secondly, the, the, church, the, the church idea also drifted not only to a person, but to the idea that the church is a building. Back then, the idea is, in, in the early days of, of, of church history, the idea was to build these huge, beautiful cathedrals to honor God, and they were so magnificent. And people would, would flock to these cathedrals, these buildings, because they were so beautiful, and they would worship the building or the architect before they would worship God. And the same is true today. You see it in phrases that we use, like, well, the Lord's house, or we get in this mindset of the church building is holy, the building is the house of the Lord, and the mentality is that the church is a building. Your grandma taught you the little thing with your fingers, right? You know, this is the church, here's the steeple, open the church and see all the people. This is the church. The problem is grandma lied to you. Because this isn't the church. The building isn't the church. The church was never designed to be a building. The church meets in a building, but it's not a building. And the moment we think that the church is an, an address or brick and mortar, we stop being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, and God's rescue effort stops. Here's another one. Sometimes we think of the church as a service, like what you're doing right now. Think about the things we say. I know it's just semantics we play along. Did you go to church today? Yeah, I went to church. I haven't been to church in weeks. If I showed up at church, the roof would cave in. I miss church. How was church? Was church good? Yeah, I love church. What are we talking about there? When we talk like that, we're talking about a service or a church service, 50 to 55 minutes of a church service. And I know it's it's just kind of a way to say it. It's easy in our vernacular. But the problem is that we begin to equate the service, what we're doing right now, with church. 
And then we begin to think, as long as I'm in the service, I must be a really good follower of Jesus. Here's the problem. I love this line. Being in a church service makes you a Christian about as much as being in a garage makes you a car. I love that line. It's so true. It just doesn't work that way. Because the church was never meant to be summed up in a 55-minute experience. We are the church, but it's not bound by time. It's not bound by place. It's not bound by experience. It's bigger than that. And the moment that we reduce church down to an hour on Sunday morning is the moment we stop being the hands and feet of Jesus and the rescue mission of God stops. Last one. Sometimes we confuse the church as being a religion. Basically, a religion is basically a list of do's and don'ts. It's, to be honest, it's mostly a list of don'ts, isn't it? Don't do this, don't do that. The church I grew up in, in Arkansas, there were a lot, a long, long list of things you don't do. I've joked before that the, the motto was don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, or go with the girls that do. It was Arkansas, what are you going to say? But that just kind of summed up church life, didn't it? As a list of things that you don't do. Now, for all of us rule keepers in the room, we love this because we can keep score. If it's a list of things that we don't do, I can keep score of which ones I didn't do. And I can see how well I'm doing, and I can see how well you're doing, and then I can judge you. And I can decide whether or not I'm going to have a conversation with you. I'm going to, because I'm keeping score. And are, am I better than you? Are you better than me? Are you good enough for me to even have a relationship with? Because I can keep score. And us rule followers love that. But for those of us who aren't rule keepers, <laughs> we ran the other way because we don't want anything to do with that. We kind of hate that idea. Guess what? God hates it too because the church was never designed to be a religion. And the moment we begin to think that, that the church is a list of do's and don'ts, we stop being the hands and feet of Jesus and the mission, the rescue effort of God stops. Let me be very clear about this. We meet in a building. We experience a service. We listen to a pastor. But we are. We are the church. And many of us need to move beyond the idea of just going to church and start moving towards the idea of becoming or being the church. Because a church building didn't die for you. And a pastor doesn't save you. But when the church becomes the hands and feet of Jesus, suddenly we become God's rescue mission in the world. Let me pray for you. Those of you who serve in communion, communion team, go ahead and take your places. Get ready to serve. Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity and this responsibility to be a part of your rescue mission in the world. Forgive us when we get it confused. Forgive us when we try to take shortcuts. Forgive us when we try to do it our way instead of your way. Forgive us when we put up on a pedestal people or buildings or ideals that are bigger or that aren't as big as what you've, you've set before us so God teach us today to be the church challenge us 
even in this room, on this broadcast, on this day, of how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, how our hands could heal and clean and rescue and serve the world around us, even right here in Tuscarora County.